You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, a sponsor that is making today's show possible is the thing I'm going to tell you about. Now, the best way to navigate the rapid changes we're seeing in our lives from tech developments to environmental shifts is to act like a change maker. At least that's Beth Comstock's advice. The former vice chair of GE has a new book. It's called Imagine It Forward about inventing the future we want to see. And on a special bonus episode of Outside the Box, that's a podcast from Walmart, Beth talks about how important it is to find time for discovery outside your comfort zone. That way, you can see better ways of doing something and then make those changes happen. Hear what else Beth has to say on Outside the Box. It's available wherever you like to listen to podcasts like this one, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey. Who's on the show this week? Uh, return guest. Another return guest. Back to pack return guest. This week, uh, Eli Saslow of the Washington Post Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, I talked to him early on in our uh, in our run with this show, and he has a book out. It's out uh, this week. It's called Rising Out of Hatred, and it is the story of uh, this kid, Derek Black, you guys read that story? Mm-hmm. He was like the son of the white nationalist movement. Uh, David Duke is his godfather. And uh, he was like the heir apparent. And then uh, over a process, which is documented in this book, he basically like uh, renounces white nationalism. Uh, you know, it's uh, applicable to our times. I'm not going to I'm not going to be baited into trying to make a segue out of that. <laughs> Did you get to keep a studio for the whole interview this time? Wasn't he the one that you went to the post and then you got kicked out of the room? Oh yeah, and I talked to him like right after Bezos had bought it and then like I think I asked him like, "So, what do you think of this whole Bezos thing?" and he was like, "It's going to be fantastic." <laughs> uh, but it has turned out well. And Eli is in a uh, he has a unique job. He writes for the post, he writes these big like Sunday features, but he does it all from Portland, Oregon. Good gig. What a Pulitzer Prize. Hey, if you're looking to win a Pulitzer Prize, start small with a newsletter. Uh, you can get one with going with MailChimp. You don't even have to pay for it until a bunch of people are subscribing. So there's nothing in your way. Let's do it, people. Newsletter today. We've all newslettered. Yeah? Yeah, there should be a Pulitzer Prize for newsletters. Yes, the Pulitzer in, in newslettering uh, <laughs> coming soon. Sponsor. Uh, we'll be the judges. Um, thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Eli Saslow. Hey, Eli. Hey, Max. How are you? Uh, I'm well, man. Good. I'm doing fine. I had a funny experience last night, which is that I, I went back and listened to our first episode of this podcast. The, oh, you did? The one that you and I did. It feels like a long time ago. It is a long time ago. I feel like actually the most encouraging thing about that is that we both still have jobs doing work that we care about in journalism, however many years later it is. I know. I mean, it could have got a lot worse for both of us. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you sound like about the same. Okay. I hope that's good. Yeah. I guess it depends how I sound it the first time. I don't. I sounded very young and, and more dumb. Maybe, yeah, naive. That's good. Yeah. I mean, the other, not that... ver- the other version would be that you had a lot of energy then and now you feel like you're just tired, <laughs> just worn old, out, old man. giving up, packing it in. Not sleeping. Um, but it was like right after 
uh, Bezos had bought the post. Right. And a lot of that conversation, I remember we recorded it at the post and like the, it's the air in the place was kind of like real, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yep. Uh, now it seems like that thing's kind of worked. Totally. Talk about other things that could have gone worse. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, uh, I'm sort of constantly surprised at how the place just feels sort of ascendant in these, um, these really vibrant ways. Like it, people are really excited to work there. They're hiring, um, they're really ambitious and uh, it feels like when stories land, they really land and they have the ability to really go. There's also like, I feel like when we were talking then, there was this big question of culture and what the impact that he was going to have on how like the place actually worked. I mean, not that I I feel like you could tell me if it was actually like (laughs) dastardly, but how has that played out? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if it was dastardly, but for... You know, for almost a decade at the post, uh, the week sort of unfolded in these constant cakings. You know, it was like goodbye cakes all the time. I mean, it was um, slow attrition for a long time. And not that people didn't still care about their jobs or weren't invested in doing really good work, but that just gets like fatiguing and sad after a while. And and now, in part because of the resources that have been invested in the place, in part because of the like real actual audience growth and, and the fact that you can feel that when you write stories and, and people respond, but also in part because the news cycle and the stakes of what's happening in the country are so huge and profound that people feel super energized in their jobs for all of those reasons. So instead of like feeling like people are sad to be hanging around the office for an extra hour on a Friday to say goodbye to three more people who are taking buyouts or just sort of bleeding out of the paper, now it's people are staying because they're really invested in doing something that they feel like is super important. That's a huge cultural change. I want to talk to you about the book. Like I got a lot of questions about the book, but can we just take a second and talk a little bit about how like you and your work have tried to fit into this moment? Sure. Yeah, of course. It, feel, it feels to me like looking back at the last two plus years of stories, you've really been, I mean, I guess you were doing this before too, but it's like immigration, border stuff, shootings. It feels to me, at least from the outside, like you are trying to find a way in to the biggest and most divisive issues in the country. Is that right? Is that how you think about it? That's definitely right. And is that, is that coming top down or is that from you? Like who, I think it's coming from me probably with some, um, internalized, not pressure, but some internalized instinct from the post that the post is really, really supportive of long form narrative journalism. And they'll give me a bunch of time to invest in stories. Um, but it can't always, or, or even often just be stories purely for the sake of stories. They have to be stories that land in the national conversation in some way. And that pertain to sort of the big things that are happening in the country. So that means for me that often the ideas are top down. I mean, I'm trying to look at what are the big things, the big pressure points in the country, and what are the ways to turn those into like intimate, personal narrative stories that might make people think about those big issues and pressure points in new ways. So I think I've kind of internalized that pressure in a way that it has become my process, if that makes sense. Walk me through that process. Like, how do you actually do it? You know, right now, um, a story I'm just starting to work on, uh, it's sort of about the border and Trump's wall and kind of the actualities of that and trying to figure out how to write about that in any way, in a way that feels new. And so just now, a lot of these families on the border are starting to get letters beginning like the eminent domain process that, um, you know, the government's going to be seizing their land to build this thing. And a lot of those families have been there since before there was a U.S. border there, since like 1700. Uh, And, you know, they got their land through Spanish land grants and it's been in families for 300 plus years. And now the government is coming into those places and saying, we can either pay you probably pretty poorly for this, or we can take it from you. Like you have to decide how, you know, how obstinate you want to be. Um, and so that seems like that's a, that's a big issue. That's a pressure point. That's a way that eventually when I get to that place to do the story, it's going to be a story about a family mm-hmm. sort of torn apart by a situation and, and a decision. And as long as I sort of get to that place, I don't have to do a bunch of big nut graphy stuff because the reporting has taken me to like from the national point to an intimate experience that's going to reveal something about it. So I think it's uh, it means that a lot of time is spent 
pre-reporting where I'm, I'm coming up with, with an idea or a notion of an idea. I'm honing it to figure out what's the right time, what's the right place, um, what's the right character to tell that story. And then, you know, in this case, I'm talking to, you know, first a dozen immigration lawyers uh, and like lawyers who are working on eminent domain stuff in that, in that area. Um, and then I'm talking to, you know, a dozen families or more trying to figure out where is the family where this is a real conflict, where I can go and I can see something instead of just asking questions about it? And, and what's the time to do that? And how much are you kind of like retrofitting the work to the original idea? Like how much are you casting for something you've come up with and how much of it is borne out in the reporting? Like I know that you sort of have to say that it's all the latter, but sure. I, I'm pretty interested in that. Like, you decide you want to write about the border. You got to have some idea about the kind of story you want to do. And I'm interested in like how much you've figured out before you go down there. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I've, um, and a question I think about a lot, I think I've figured out a lot about the frame. Like obviously something has brought me down to, to do that story. It's, it's brought me down to the family, but then I think in hope in my stories, that framing sort of disappears. Like that's the idea. That's what gets me there. But then the story is going to be, I'm going to be there with those people watching it play out. So I know that it's going to be a family that's making a decision about what to do with their land. I don't know yet exactly what's going to happen or how it's going to unfold or, you know, and that's what the story's about. So it sort of is like the process frees me from worrying about the framework and I can just go and pay attention to what's in front of me in a way where I don't need to be rooting for an outcome. I know I'm in a place where there's tension and something is going to happen and whatever the outcome is, it's important in this bigger way. So I think as journalists, like we have to sometimes choreograph like what is the place and the spot and the thing that we're writing about because otherwise I would just be, you know, especially in my job where I have this great, incredible luxury of being able to write about pretty much anything. Um, I would just be picking up the phone and like calling random people and hoping that I stumbled into something instead of trying to be cognizant about what are the interesting and important things that are happening and what are the places where that's happening right now. All right. Two questions. So one is when you go to the border, are you talking to one family, three families, 10 families? Like, do you know exactly where you're headed before you get there? Usually. Because I've talked to, you know, 10 families before I go and, mm -hmm. and the family that I'm eventually going to spend time with, I've probably spent three hours or whatever on the phone with them and have talked to multiple people and have also done a lot of thinking about when is the right time to go. So like in the case of this story, I knew I wanted to do this story, but there was nothing happening for a long time. So it's like I sort of had families that I was interested in, but nobody had come to them yet and said, we want to take this from you. So then it was a matter of just being like, I got to wait. I, gotta, I need to wait for a while until the moment is right. How do you convince that family to let you in? I think sometimes you don't. Uh, sometimes people don't want to be written about and they say no. And so for me, I think I've gotten better over time at being okay with that and also realizing that it's better for me to know on the front end that people feel uncomfortable about something. It, it saves me a lot of time and also just a lot of really hard conversations and feeling just sort of icky about, about how things are going. So I try to be really transparent on the front end about process. Like I want to be there for a long time. Like it's not going to be an interview or two. Like I'm, I'm hoping to be there and stay for a while and sort of watch what's happening. And then trust builds gradually over time. In the first phone conversation, that might be really scary to people or they might have questions about it. But then I answer those questions and then we talk again over the phone and they're feeling more comfortable with me. Um, and by the time I come down, oftentimes trips are starting where people think like, well, we'll see how this goes for a few hours or, you know, and, and then you hope that just based on, you know, building trust and empathy and being really curious about people's situations that they see that you're genuine about being interested. And usually that builds trust pretty quickly. And, you know, sometimes, honestly, that's I'm making a separate trip where the trip might be pretty much entirely off the record. And I might just be somebody that I'm trying to write about. I might be saying to them, I really want to write about this. I think it's really important. I know that's a big risk for you. Let me come there and let's have dinner. Let's have lunch and let's talk about what it might be like. So that instead of feeling like you're making this scary decision about whether you want to trust some random person with putting everything in the Washington Post, like we can, you can feel like you know me a little bit and we can talk about it. And, you know, if you're not willing to tell the story now, or if now doesn't seem like the right time, I'll also be a person to you if you decide that that time does come. It's funny. That sounds both like totally luxurious to me. And also I wonder whether 
you feel like you could do your job without it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I couldn't do my job without it. And, and I think it's also like, it sounds luxurious when the stories work out, but there's a lot of times where they don't work out. You know I mean? There's, I wrote earlier this year about the uh, police officer at the Parkland school um, who didn't go in when shots were fired. And that was a lot, it was writing letters, building trust over time. And that one worked out. Uh, there are probably for every 10 times that doesn't work out, one works out. So it's like the batting average is low. People don't see the ones that, you know, the letters that never get answered. Um, and, but that's, and literally with that guy, you actually wrote him a letter. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote him a letter, put him in the mail. I, first, I tried to call. He didn't pick up. He was sort of in, in hiding from the world a little bit. Then I tried to get in touch with his lawyer just to figure out if there was a way to get in touch with him. His lawyer never never responded to me, never got back to me. Um, and then I wrote him a letter um, sort of explaining who I was and why I thought it was important and why I wanted to do it and just mailed it to him. And he, maybe a week later, sent me an email back saying, not warming to the idea really at all, but just saying, I got your letter. I appreciate that you that you wrote it. Um, What's in that letter? I think in this case, that letter was basically me explaining that his was the one part of the story that wasn't that hadn't been told and that a lot of people had had made judgments about him and had assumed things that he hadn't talked about yet. And so I wanted to know not only what happened on that day, but also what it had been like for him to to sort of live with this and deal with it. Like he was a part of that community. He'd been the school resource officer at that school for, you know, 10 years and felt like incredible amounts of guilt, which I didn't know, but could assume that he just, he'd lost kids uh, and, and kids in a place where he felt really connected. So I think like I wrote from a place of empathy and curiosity and also just in introducing myself and saying, if there's a time when you want to talk about this, I have the luxury of spending a lot of time on stories and, and my one, the one thing that I will make sure to do is to stay and be there until I feel like I can get it right. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold with Eli for just a second. Tell you about a sponsor who's back with us making today's show possible. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, whatever you want to do, Squarespace is the tool for you with beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality, it lets you sell anything online. And analytics help your site grow in real time. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. You don't need to know a lick of code with Squarespace. You can make a beautiful website for whatever project you've been itching to do uh, easily, beautifully with Squarespace. It empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash longform, offer code longform. So nice to have Squarespace back. And now let's get back to Eli. This might be like a really tedious question, but I think it connects a little bit to the Porter stuff or like the idea of like kind of casting this. How much of that, so that Parkland shooting happens and the whole country is focused on that story. How much of your desire to go and talk to that officer is because you were genuinely curious about his experience and how much of it is just knowing that like that's a good angle for the story. Right. That's a great question. Maybe because I'm not sure how separate those two things are. Like I think I've been doing this for long enough that it's almost like you know and also I think like story sense in terms of the stories that you think will be interesting to people and that people care about and the things that I myself am interested in those are often wildly different, but the stories that I try to write are when that's the same. Like it's, first of all, I don't want to do stories that I don't care about because the stories aren't going to be good. And because I have the luxury of being able to, you know, to have a lot of latitude in the stories that I write. So I know I want to pick stories that I'm invested in. I also want people to read those stories. So I want them to be things that other people are curious about and care about too. And 
you know, I think this was one of those times where like he was the one person from that story that had just stuck in my mind. He was like the, in part because I was curious, it was like this mystery of why didn't this guy go in? And because afterwards I'd seen what had happened to him. You know, so my own personal curiosity and my sense that this is almost a universal curiosity were one and the same and were probably why I was really compelled to do it. Well, it's funny because I don't think that curiosity was universal. I mean, I think for lots of people, he was a useful, like open and shut villain. Right. You know, I mean, like he was this thing, I mean, particularly online, like it was just like, uh, this guy fucked up. Yep. For some reasons of like cowardice and evil. Sure. And people didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it beyond that. Right. That's, I mean, isn't that, I don't know. I, I feel like the value oftentimes of longer journalism and sort of narrative journalism, or at least the kind that I try to do is to take things that seem simple and make them complicated. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find things that people have assumptions about and feel like they know and have strong feelings about and bring nuance to them and make them think about them hopefully in different ways because they actually, when they finish the story, they know way more about it than they did before. So I I think that's, it's not uncommon that I pursue a story where everybody has an assumption about something and sort of try to try to see if those assumptions are true and, and bear out or um, you know, just write about it as it really is. I think, yeah, that's appealing to me. Yeah. It's also just, those are better stories. Like when yeah. it's different than what everybody thinks that it's going to be. Well, I mean, just, that's, that's a good answer to my tedious question, which is like, um, it's both. Yeah. Like the good ones are both. Um, do you look for the stories where you have assumptions like is part of the point of this to report out things where you know like you might be taking the short route hmm i don't really think so because i think for the most part i have learned enough in doing this to know that it's stupid to have assumptions like i i I mean my assumption with scott peterson the the police officer outside the Parkland school was that obviously things were much more complicated than it had been simplified to be. You know, and I think rarely do I go in expecting this is going to be a very simple one dimensional thing. Uh, You know, it's people are just so interesting and multifaceted. And when you spend a bunch of time with them and you gain their trust, nothing is simple. Like I can't think of one story that I've done in the last 10 years where I walked away with a simple conclusion. Like it just, that would be disappointing. But it seems like your desire and interest in, in sort of like, um, sort of like sticking your finger in that like nuance and lack of simplicity in these issues, which seem to be completely polarizing in the country, right? like immigration, gun control. There aren't a lot of people like in the, in the middle Right. Issues, or at least that's how it feels, yep. right? There's not a lot of people who are like, ah, I can see both sides. Yep. And that does seem to me to, in a way to kind of be the takeaway from these stories, particularly like this book you just wrote. That's an exact example of that. Right. There are, are uh, certainly like on the left, there's not a lot of like um, empathy for white nationalism. Right. Wouldn't say there's a lot of empathy on the part of white nationalists for the left either. Yeah. I would agree on both fronts. So was that the same thing? Like, was that what attracted you to that story? Yeah. I mean, I think what attracted me to that story in the first place was also the, just the like total complicated humanness of it, that you had a son who had been raised to sort of take over this horrific movement and whose family had always seen that as the singular purpose for his life and who had ended up in such an opposite place that that first part of his life had essentially exploded, like it didn't exist anymore. You know, that was so complicated for identity and relationships and all this other stuff that felt really rich. Um, but I, I do think that there's there's not anymore, frankly, there are not a lot of people in the middle on very many things. Like that's, I think, like, you know, in terms of polarization and just the assumptions that we make about stuff, it's really easy to have strong judgments and strong moral judgments about stuff when you don't know very much about them or when you don't know, when you don't take the effort to learn very much about them and, and the people involved in them. And then, of course, like it always it always becomes human and, and more complicated. Not white nationalism. White nationalism is still like a horrific, problematic, 
awful ideology. And, but that doesn't mean that portraying people or thinking of people purely as monsters is more effective. In fact, like revealing the humanity is sometimes much more scary because it's, first of all, it's more real. And then second of all, it's knowing like this, this person is also a person just like me and is capable of thinking these horrible things and still can like love his kid or live a life that in many ways is recognizable, but is also capable of like real evil. Um, and that's, I think that's just, that's scarier and more real than sort of writing about people just as stereotypes or, you know, monsters or villains on one side or the other. Do you want these stories to have an impact? Yeah, I, of course I want them to have an impact, but not an impact. It would be, this job would be so disappointing if I expected to write stories and then have like big, like big impact, you know, like it's uh, just, you'd be setting yourself up for disappointment. I hope that stories have like personal impact on the people who read them and in ways bring more nuance or awareness to their thinking. I think of impact in terms of like singular reader impact and more, more than I do in terms of, I hope that this will change this or that. First of all, that would be writing from a place of like, almost activist journalism, which is in inherently problematic, but also like just that doesn't happen really. Like it's, uh, you, you hope that people read it and they spend 15 or 20 minutes thinking about it, or in the case of a book, six hours thinking about it. And it makes them think about things in a different way in their own lives in these little subtle ways that maybe if a bunch of people read it, it has like a diffuse impact. I'd say that's the way I think about impact. Do you hear from people about that impact? For sure. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear from people about that impact. And that's, I think I have to believe that these stories have that impact because otherwise that's like the reason that I do my job. I want the stories to matter to people. And I, more than that, I want the people in the stories to matter to people. I want to be able to go write about somebody in a way that hopefully that person lives in some small way in like a reader's mind when they're thinking about an issue and makes them maybe think about it in a different way or at least it gives them somebody to hold on to that's real um, when they're making assumptions about the way the world works. Let's talk about Derek Black. How'd you find that story and how did you, how'd you get him to trust you? It was a long road. Uh, and, and sometimes like that's how these stories work out. It's like this weird mix of patience and persistence. So with Derek, I was writing about Dylan Roof who had, shot a dozen people at a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And he'd spent a bunch of time on this website called Stormfront, which I sort of knew about as like the big center of just uh, racial hatred uh, internationally on, on the web. But I hadn't spent any time there and didn't know that much about it. So I started going on there to read about Dylan Roof and what they were saying about Dylan Roof. And of course they were saying they were, they were sometimes celebrating Dylan Roof in really horrific and gross ways. But the thread on this message board that still, like for the last year, had the most traction was about the son of the founder of this board, Derek Black, who had really publicly disavowed the ideology and sort of disappeared. And I just started reading that thread. And it was, you know, Don Black, his father was on that thread, you know, posting in really, in a public way, about the personal hurt of this and... um I just got really curious. Like I wanted to know what happened to this guy, like where, uh, and he was hard to find. He sort of changed his name and switched his first and middle name and moved to a different part of the country. And, um, but you know, Nexus and other things like it was, took maybe a, a week or, or whatever, a few days to find where he was and then reached out to him. He didn't respond. I finally got in touch with his landlord who sort of passed the message on to him. And then Derek wrote me back and said, don't contact me again. Like I, I don't want to do this. And so then I didn't, I didn't contact him. Uh, and probably a year went by and I worked on other stories and it was one of those, you know, one of the 90% of stories that I want to do that just like, man, I really wish I could have done that story, but it was gone. But then everything that was happening over the next year after I'd contacted him, like white nationalism, not just in the U S but around the world had sort of crystallized into this political, Force, Not that it wasn't before, but it was part of the conversation in ways that it hadn't been. And I just couldn't forget about that story. And and so I think a year after I emailed him the first time, just decided, you know, I'm just going to take one more shot and, and send him another email where I just said that, like, look, there are things happening right now that are really big and important. And I feel like you understand this stuff and the dangers of it in ways that most people don't. And if you're ever going to, if you're ever going to, going to say something about that, this feels like the time. And, and this is like 2016, mid 2016. Yeah, I think it was August. I believe 
Trump was the nominee and it was like sort of heading towards uh, heading towards the fall of the election. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, I think Derek had been having his own feelings that like he, you know, I think for a while he felt like he'd left this stuff in his past, like this awful white nationalist background was something that he could just leave behind and kind of bury and not think about again. And that was always naive. But 2016 made it clear to him that like this stuff was rising. And I think he felt awful about that and in some small ways culpable and felt like I don't think he agreed to uh, spend time with me because he wanted to, um, at least not at first. I think he felt like it was the thing he needed to do. It was like the, I think he felt his own moral reasons that he needed to talk about it and, and become public about it. What's the first conversation like? What do you do in the first conversation? Um, you know, it's, it's pretty slow. And again, like I have, if I have a few of these stories going on at once, I have the luxury of letting it be slow. So I, I think the first conversation, Derek sent me that email saying I like, I might be open to this. Um, and we talked over the phone and we, you know, I sort of explained to him the kind of work that I do. Oftentimes people will be, will want to know more and will say, can you send me a couple stories or can I, you know, I'm going to read some of the stories that you write. Or, you know, I think the first thing I did, cause I already knew a decent amount about him. I offered to answer his questions about like, what's it going to be like to be written about? Do you send the same stories every time? Uh, no, I'd say like I cultivate the stories I send a little bit by issue or like maybe there are like 10 different stories that I would send, but also like now sending stories seems sort of silly because like go to Google, like you can find any, any story, right. like it's not that difficult, but, uh, yeah. So after that first conversation, we agreed to meet that I was going to come, but Derek was still, you know, he told me to meet him in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I thought that he, he sort of presented it as if he lived there. Um, in fact, I found out later he didn't live there. Like he didn't want me to come to where he lived. Cause that was, he still just wasn't sure. Like he didn't know, which is why it's always better to spend time in person if you can. Like it just trust builds so much more quickly. So I went to Ann Arbor. We spent like one day where we just were walking and talking the entire day around Ann Arbor. And he was using, he was still so nervous. He was using code names for all of his friends. So uh, we've joked about it often since, but like his friends were like his, Allison, his girlfriend was sailing friend and uh, Matthew who invited him over to Shabbat dinner was Shabbat friend. I mean, he just didn't want to reveal anybody's identity. And you know, so very slowly from there, I think for the piece that I wrote for the post, probably it was two different trips to spend time with Derek and a trip to spend time with his father and, and be in Florida. And, you know, over the course of six weeks, like then writing a, a big piece about it, but also realizing the trust had still not quite built to the point where I had the whole story. Like there were whole folds of it that I knew were there that I, you know, his, his girlfriend who'd been so influential in his life and was sort of the bridge between who he had been and who he was now was not ready to be in the story at all. Like was helpful in spending time with me and helping me understand his perspective, but did not want any part of it. Um, and so although I felt good about the piece, it also felt like it was missing so many fundamental things about what the story was that just made me feel like there was a lot more to, to do. That story came out in October. And I mean, most of your stories, lots of your stories seem like they you know, get read incredibly widely and are at the top of the, the posts, emailed list and all of that stuff. But that one felt different. Did it feel that way to you? Uh, that's nice of you to say. Thanks. We should like replay that part a few times for editors. Uh, um, Eli's story, always crush. <laughs> I think it was, uh, yeah, that one felt different. Like it felt like that story really popped and, and was, um, yeah. It, it, that was uh, such a shitty leading question. I, what I was really trying to ask you is like, why? Why did that? Why do you think why that? Why did it feel that? Why, why did Derek's story captivate people in the way it did? Because I think it landed yeah, I think sometimes the thing when when you're talking about like finding stories that that resonate in big ways in terms of what's going on in the in the national conversation is like that story was I think it it informed a lot and it had a lot to say about what was going on, but it wasn't really about that. It was not on the nose and you know, it said something new about what was happening in ways that maybe made people think about it differently. And and I think that's um those are stories that that have a chance to be really resonant. I also think just in terms of the you know, sometimes I write stories about people nobody's ever heard of. Like when I'm trying to explain the story to somebody, it's like this long tortured thing where it's like, oh, it's about a kid in Wyoming whose family owned guns. But, they, you know, it's this story to people right away, I think, sort of felt big. Like this guy who was supposed to lead this movement and whose family still leads this movement and who for a long time 
did sort of rise up in this ascendant way and get elected to public office in Florida and have a daily radio show as a white nationalist, he then changed his name, broke from his family, changed everything about his beliefs, and now is activating against them. That's just interesting. Like it's uh, like people get that story pretty quickly. Uh, so I think that also was one of the reasons. A lot of the stories that have been done by the Times, the Post, NPR just had one recently where they endeavor to cover that movement get met with tremendous criticism right from both sides do you think it's just that arc that like saved this one from that whirlpool or or is there something else i think a big problem with some of those stories and i share the feeling that they're sometimes problematic is that writing about the ideology in a way that doesn't challenge it somehow is inherently problematic i mean like to write a story about you know a white nationalist and and sort of indicate like oh like white nationalists also like to go to lunch at you know applebee's and like they like just to sort of say this is becoming normal now and that's not enough like it's that's a problematic thing and so but it's also a very difficult position as a journalist i think we've seen this in the way that journalists have struggled with covering trump and sometimes calling a lie a lie it feels problematic as a journalist sometimes to be the one presenting that challenge to the ideology especially if you're trying to to write an unbiased story about what people think or say. That's hard. In this case, the great luxury of this story is the entire story is about people challenging the ideology. Like, I don't need to come in and say these things are problematic because all the people in Derek's life, the whole arc of the story is him going to college and in all these different ways, all these different effective ways, people challenging the ideology. And that's that's also what's interesting about it. And one of the things that really drew me to the story was this fact that on campus, all these people had had such different approaches to change his thinking. Like there was hardcore civil resistance, protest him, make his life miserable on campus. That was necessary and effective. It it isolated him. It left him off campus. He didn't have any friends. He saw sort of for the first time in an intimate way, how awful his, like how much his ideology was hurting other people that needed to happen. Also, there were people on campus like Matthew, his who became his best friend, who is Jewish, who decided he was never going to talk to Derek about white nationalism. He just wanted to build a relationship with him to essentially show him over time, hey, like Jews are nice and normal too, like we're kind of the same, and that was really effective. And then there were other people like Allison, his girlfriend and others who directly challenged like the racial science of what he thought and had really in-depth conversations about what he believed and sort of deconstructed this belief system in like a civil discourse way. And so I think sometimes like there's this idea, especially right now in the country, that there's like this binary choice between like resistance, civil resistance, like make somebody feel really uncomfortable and like reach out to people and be nice to them and maybe they'll change their thinking. And in his case, of course, as always, things are way more complicated than like a binary choice. Like it's both of those things work together and were both really essential, which also meant that this was an opportunity for a book where the characters were like anarchists on campus and like David Duke. And like, it's just a huge tent. Like it's people who think really different things. Yeah. I mean, part of the issue with those stories that come under such fire is I think that the their goal is to do what you were trying to do in the book, which is like find some humanity in people that it's very difficult to see from the outside. Um, but then they try and do it in like an afternoon. Right. And that's really hard. Yeah. And then you come up with this kind of like shallow version of that and the shallow version rings pretty badly. Yep. So I think that, I think that that's like, it's hard to do if you can't get all that time. Yeah. I think, I would say the other thing is like you have to know why you're trying to write about somebody with humanity and the reason has to be good like especially in in this kind of a situation. So in this story if a reader does not appreciate the fact that this transformation is going to wound Derek's father so badly. If people don't know that this is going to be like a knife to him, then nobody understands how hard it is for Derek eventually to change his ideology. Like it doesn't doesn't do justice to what the story actually was. Also like there's I never I never worried really about having any redemption for Don or white nationalists in the book because they don't ask for any redemption. In the end, Don decides he's going to build a relationship with Richard Spencer. Like that's it speaks for itself. So I think, you know, it's walking a line of instead of going away from the complicated truth of something, leaning into it and 
being really factual about the damage that this stuff causes and and also making sure in the book to have you know have characters who are who are reconciling with that damage and whose lives and whose families have been really damaged by it did you feel at any point in the reporting or in the writing of the book that you empathized with don i empathized with the fact that he felt like he'd suffered like a death in the family with with his kid and he felt like he had a kid that he loved and and was really really hurt by it and i never empathized with his ideology or the way that he lived his life and those two things were different and they can be different i think it's hard to write about if you can't find any way to identify with somebody that you're writing about like if you can't find any place of empathy that's not going to be a good character in a story or a book because it's it's hard to make that interesting like if there's no if there's no humanity in somebody first of all that's not usually true or at least i haven't written about very many people i don't think any people david duke maybe comes close where there's like no no humanity and that's the interesting part like the fact that he can love his kid and be broken about it and still act in ways that are causing similar harm on other families is that's like more fucked up and interesting and scary than if everybody who did bad things was like a sociopath. Does this stuff take a toll on you? Yeah. Sometimes it takes in like small moments. It takes a toll like hard stories or spending time in hard stories takes a toll. But the truth is it's like, it gives me so much more than it takes. Like I feel like I'm doing a job that I think is valuable and also like personally learning about things that I think is valuable. And that's like, so in the big arc, that's like restorative. Like that's um, reporting trips while they're short-term exhausting. I would say they give me energy to do this work. It's my favorite part about it. I meant more like the, the work of like digging to find that humanity and empathizing with people who in other respects you find abhorrent and just kind of like, engaging and trying to engage as fully as it seems like you do with some of the kind of like darkest elements right. in America. Like uh, you and I hang out some, go get a beer, you're like a jovial man. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Crack I some jokes. Uh, I'm like picturing Santa Claus now. <laughs> talk, talk, you know, you and I sit talking about like fucking basketball and our kids and shit. Yep. And then like I go back and talk to a bunch of people here in my like, uh, you know, liberal bubble in Brooklyn with oat milk, and you go to West Palm Beach and talk to the leader of the white nationalist movement. I have so many questions about oat milk, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's just also sort of who I am. Like, I'm, um, if I wasn't doing it in like a professional reporting capacity, I still would be curious about trying to understand other people's experiences and trying to, when possible, find the things to empathize with. Like, that's. I think that's mostly how I go through the world. So it's really, it's for me, it's really invigorating to sort of briefly for a moment in time intersect with or learn about experiences that are so different from your own. And, and it's also like in this case with the book, it's a little bit different, but when those experiences are like people going through really difficult stuff, it's a, if I'm writing about heroin addiction or I'm writing about somebody whose you know, land is being seized on the border or whatever else, it's also like that's whatever like tiny amount of fatigue that might bring to me for the four days that that's my situation like I leave and I go on to the next story and for those people like it's that is their situation so it, it seems it seems like if I can't invest enough in myself to care for four or five days really intently about hearing what that's like then I probably shouldn't do this work is it hard to leave sometimes it's hard to leave I mean I'm really eager to get home but it's hard uh these relationships are hard because that's what I meant yeah it, it's hard to to ethically sort out the fact that it's my job and also like it's true that for a month that I'm working on the story I care so intensely about everything that's happening um, and I am asking people to tell me everything that they're thinking and everything that they're going through and that's really genuine but then like the story runs and I'm doing that 10 times a year um, but oftentimes if I'm writing about somebody who's you know never been written about likely to not be written about again it doesn't really seem fair for me to then like not stop caring. I don't stop caring, but to stop being invested in a way of just wanting to listen to what they're dealing with. So that can be complicated. I mean, I think the relationships at the heart of every story for me 
however long I am into doing this, 12 years, whatever, that's the part that gets more complicated as time goes on. And it, it was true with the book. Like, it's still true with the book. It's so complicated to navigate trust and sort of building these relationships up to the point of publication. I mean, you know, in the case of the book, Derek and, and Allison, his girlfriend, it was the book was like, it's not only a matter of getting people to trust me so that I can spend time with them and see things and have them talk to me. But in the case of the book, it was like, I want to see every G chat that you send each other for however long and every email that everybody was sending back and forth. And then trying to build that trust to the point where, okay, like here's everything we've ever communicated with each other. We'll trust you to put in what you think needs to go in the book. I mean, that's it's just so much to ask of people. And that comes with so much, you know, rightfully so, so, so many nerves on the other end. And like, it's um, so in some ways, like the reporting process doesn't end. Like, when I'm done reporting, it's not like the trust suddenly becomes less important. And even even after publication, oftentimes that continues because stories echo in people's lives in, in unexpected ways. So, yeah, the relationships are um, really rewarding, really interesting in their complications, but definitely like the for me, the hardest and most complicated part. And they're getting harder. Yeah, they are getting harder because I think like I. I understand the nuance better and I also understand what's at stake for people better. Like I think. I don't know. I hope this isn't bad to say, but when I was 26, like I, I, or however old I was, it's not like I was writing stories that were in any way factually not true or, but I was like in every situation I was writing whatever I had because like, this is, this is true. I know it's true. This person said this, I saw this thing happen. I'm writing it this way. And I think like now I understand sometimes the things that aren't necessarily important to a story or even, you know, in any way essential to a story can um, have major ramifications for people. And I, I also understand that the weight that every word in a story sometimes carries. And it's also thinking about how to frame stories and where to end stories. If I'm writing about somebody once for 5,000 words in the Washington Post who's addicted to drugs, like I'm choosing in the public eye where their story ends. Like that's it. Like the people aren't going to know anymore. Like that's that's where I'm going to leave them being written about. And of course, like that is inherently artificial, like nothing ends, like their life is continuing. This is just where the narrative ends. So even thinking about the ethics and the fairness of, of that is complicated. I mean, I think weighing, weighing all of that for me, I, I understand it better than I used to in part because I've been through it a bunch of times and seen the different ways that it plays out. Have you made mistakes? Oh yeah, definitely. I've made mistakes and I've written things sometimes that have been hurtful to people for reasons that I feel like I just, I didn't need that. Like I shouldn't have, you know, that was like one tiny detail that, you know, or just one place where I just, I wrote to the far edge instead of trying in a moment to be a little bit more kind uh, or just a little bit more conscientious about what I was writing. Is, but there, then there, is there an example of that that you can think of? Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote a story about a, a family that had like survived Katrina and moved to this little town in Nebraska. And this town had tried to save them 10 years earlier. Uh, and, um, you know, really what had happened in this town is that, um, you know, the town had like thought the best of itself and thought we can take this family from inner city, New Orleans, we'll sponsor them. Things will go great. Uh, they did not go great. Um, you know, 10 years of racism unraveling and really complicated, um, results. And this family was still in that town and I was writing about them. And there were things that I did in that story. They were all hundred percent true in terms of particularly one daughter's relationship with her parents where like I had her saying things that were really, really cutting, uh, really cutting. And she said a lot of other things in that conversation that were less cutting, but just as effective for the purpose of the story. And I went with absolutely most cutting and it, it gutted them. Like I, I, I know it gutted them and, and it probably changed relationships in that family. And not because I technically did anything wrong. I, they were talking in front of me. Everything was on the record. I heard it. I wrote it down. But the story would not have lost a single thing mm -hmm. if I had gone with something that was less cutting. And there was plenty of that there. So I've learned more just how to weigh all that stuff in my own mind and how how to balance sort of journalistic integrity and personal integrity in all these different sometimes complicated ways. And then, yeah, of course, there are other times that stories hurt people and it's for necessary reasons. It's because you wrote like the honest, the honest version and you, you know, and it was necessary that it was going to be hurtful in some ways. That story about the family in Nebraska, did, did you realize that after the fact, cause they told you? Yeah. Yeah. They definitely told me. <laughs> uh, and not only did they tell me 
but they, you know, as the months and years in that case went on, like I knew that it had really impacted their life in this town and, and the family dynamics. So I think like I have just, you know, like I think I've realized that for me, like these are stories that I care about a lot, but like the stories continue to exist for people after they're published and they have, I think I just, I recognize the weight in, in ways that maybe I didn't before. Um, and so that, and I think that's a really good thing. Like it, it also makes me be way more careful in the process of making sure that I'm, I have my facts, right. I'm including things for the right reason. I'm, I'm telling the story that I feel like is fair and honest and not dialed up in any way, but it, leads to slightly more anxiety uh, like as you're going towards publication. Does reckoning with the weight, like really uh, internalizing the weight, affect the kinds of stories you want to do? No. Um, not yet. I, I hope it doesn't because like it's the complicated stories that I'm that I'm drawn to. You know, and yeah, I think if it gets to a point where, where it becomes so hard you know, to reckon with the weight that it's impacting my story decisions, then I'll like that'll be a hard road that I hope I don't cross for a long time. Did you learn anything like, uh, I don't know about yourself or humanity people doing the book? Like maybe a better way of asking that question is this like, it's an incredible story and it says a lot about the country and where we are right now. But I just wondered reading it, whether, whether you had learned something from spending all that time with those folks. I mean, I guess on the most basic level, I mean, so there there are many things about the book that I think are really dark. And for me, some of the things I learned in reporting the book were really dark. I think like I, I understand in part through Derek's knowledge and his experience, the weight of the country's white supremacist history in ways that I didn't before. And the fact that, you know, white nationalism is not some you know, fringe movement or sideshow, but something where a lot of the ideology is like hardcore embedded in what the country is and what it was set up to be. Um, and that that's one realization. But the other thing for me, I think that attracted me to the story in the first place is that, you know, I think now in the country, but also just in my own life and relationships with people and family and everything else, opinions and positions can feel so intractable like it's hard to imagine anybody changing their mind about anything and here's a case where like the two poles of this transformation are stretched to a place of almost like you know unbelievable it's just it's it's just an insane transformation to go from thinking being so sure about one thing and investing everything in your life and advocating for it and then suddenly being so sure about the exact opposite thing and investing yourself in undoing the damage that you've done that like tracing the arc of how a transformation like that happens, uh, that's that's super hopeful. Like you can go from thinking that to thinking this. Right. Like that doesn't that doesn't happen very often. And so, you know, and it took a lot. And I think that's it's also why doing it as a book instead of just as a story, like it's hard to take somebody from being the future heir of the white nationalist movement to like a very socially conscious person writing anti-white national editorials in the, in the New York times in 5,000 words. It's just like, what, what happened? Like, <laughs> right. how, how did this, you know, it's uh, the truth is what it takes for somebody to change their mind on something like that is like two and a half really messy back and forth years with tons of tension and like hand wringing and guilt and everything else. And that's, you know, that's what the book's about. Like it's trying to, trying to understand how does somebody go from this place way over here to this place way over here. And if somebody can do that, is there some hope that like other people can make transformations or change their mind about things that are where the stakes are much lower and like the two sides are way closer together. So what did you learn, man? How do we do this? How do we like, uh, you know, bridge the, bridge the uh, gap in well, America? Can you just need, solve like, that problem for us? like tons of civil resistance on campus. We need really <laughs> smart people who understand a lot about racial science to uh, start civil discourse in really in really smart ways. Um, we need like uh, people of all different backgrounds to be willing to spend time together and go sit together at, at tables and have conversations. I mean, it's hard. Like it's, it's really, uh, I think I learned for myself that giving up and sort of surrendering like with people in my own life and just deciding like, well, like this is, this gap can never be closed. I learned that that probably is not the best thing to do because there are ways maybe to close the gap or at least to try. What's your relationship with Derek like now? Uh, I mean, we've spent so much time together and, and like, 
it's weird in that I know his life just really well. I mean, it, because there was a huge public archive of his, you know, he was on the radio show every day with his dad. Uh, so I've listened to, you know, the best part about being done reporting the book was like on my, on my trail runs, I no longer have to listen to old white nationalist radio shows. Uh, like, so in terms of the personal toll that it took, that was, I'm glad not to listen to that anymore. But, uh, our relationship is, um, there is now a ton of mutual trust. Like we, we've, and, and in this case it took longer than almost any, any other one I've had, um, and any other reporting relationship I've had. But, um, you know, I think the other thing, if I feel like there's something that I'm happy about for Derek as a result of reporting on him is that he, you know, his life was still really divided. Like when I first reached out to him, nobody in his current life knew that he'd been a white nationalist before he was living under a different name. He was like, and I think now he sort of is owning like a cohesive existence in a way that just, I think he finds less stressful. You guys friends? That's such a complicated question. Uh, I would never put it in those terms. And that's partly because like, it's still, the process is still ongoing. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't think I would ever say I was friends with somebody I was writing about because the relationship is so much more complicated than that because it's, it's like inherently transactional in some ways, like something, this is, it's weird to say of any friendship that it will result in this public thing where, you know, you don't have any control over it, which is true in this case. So I think it's, it's possible that like, it's a relationship that that's moving in that direction and that has moved in that direction. But I think also both of us were very conscious throughout the reporting process that it's, um, that's not what it is because it's, it's just too complicated for that. Like it's, he also, you know, we had conversations about that. He realized that it would be problematic also. And, you know, even in the process of doing the book, like him understanding that the only, the only way I can do this book in a way that I want to do it is that it has to be like a fully journalistic book. Like it's not, um, I don't want to do a book with you. I don't, it's, it's like, I need to, in order to tell the story the way that I feel like it needs to be told, I need to, to have full range to, you know, it's not just from his perspective. Like I need to inhabit other people's perspectives in the story. And yeah, I'd, I'd be curious what Derek would say if, if he were asked that, that question. Can it change after the process ends? Like the book is out. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can change. I mean, there are definitely people from stories that I've written about before. Yeah. The relationship definitely changes because like, especially if it's, I'm not writing about him anymore, then it also changes our conversations because instead of him telling me things, thinking like, I might be writing about that. Like I, you know, then it's like, we're just talking. I'm not writing about you anymore. Uh, and of course that like, it just deformalizes everything in a way that is necessary for like a true fully formed friendship. So, you know, I, I think when you're in the active place of chronicling somebody's life, like I would have a really hard time being friends with somebody who is, who, when I was talking to them, I knew that they were also like recording it, writing it down and potentially broadcasting it to a large number of people. It's just a complicated thing. Have you become a better listener? I hope so. Um, I try as a reporter usually to have the focus of reporting trips and of stories to be almost entirely on the people that I'm that I'm writing about. And so it's sort of left on their terms often, like how much they know about me and how much of the reporting experience is like 100% the focus is on them all the time. Some people are not comfortable with that and they want to be asking about you sometimes. And if that's the case, like I'm very happy to do that. But there are definitely reporting trips where I spend four days with people and I know so much about their lives in like the most granular way. And they might vaguely know that I might have a kid and I live in Oregon or do you live in Washington, DC or like, you know, and that's, that's fine. Like that's, um, that doesn't bother me at all. So I think I'm very comfortable listening nonstop for long amounts of time. And, but for me, I think the way that I, the only way that I'm a good listener is if I am listening to something that I genuinely can find some way to care about. So really being a good listener for me goes back to story selection and making sure that as much as possible, I'm either writing about something that I'm genuinely curious about or can find the things about it that I'm genuinely curious about. Um, I'm going to let you go in a second, but I just want to ask you quickly about um, this like uh, sweet ass gig you have and how you feel about the future of like, you know, newspapers and your world. So my understanding, do you tell me if this is incorrect? Uh, you write for the Washington Post based in Washington, D.C. Uh, you yourself live in Portland, Oregon. You write 10 stories a year. You get to pick them yourself. 
you have been working with your editor, David Finkel, for how long? Uh, eight years, maybe. A long time. Sounds just from the outside. Like you've got like incredible autonomy, working with one of the best editors in America, and uh, it seems like a pretty sweet gig. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it feels that way from the inside too. I'm like sweating out of guilt right now, just hearing, <laughs> hearing all that stuff read back. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's an incredibly fortunate situation and like it's almost ideal conditions to do this kind of journalism. So I think like if I were in general, like a more just like purely contented or, or less ambitious person, I would probably just be like, this is amazing. Uh, and I would be celebrating that. Um, but the other truth of it is, um, the pressure for me is I, because the setup is so good, I want the stories to be good. Like the stories have to earn the fact, like if I have stories that don't turn out under these conditions that are so ideal, like like, that is not good. Like the, (laughs) the only thing I can blame is myself. Uh, so, you know, I think, I tend to think about it a little bit more that way while recognizing the extreme privileges of the situation. Also recognizing that the pressure that comes with that is um, I have to earn that. Uh, hopefully every story or at least like every few stories, I hope I'm earning the fact that they're letting me do that. I was going to ask you about a different uh, form of anxiety, which is like, I think it's uh, obviously and clearly deserved, but it does make me wonder, like, I'm not sure you've heard, but some newspapers are struggling. Yes. Uh, this stuff is all hurting and and I just wondered about how it felt to be in like you described just like the right conditions to do this work kind of the best possible conditions to do this work when the apparatus around you not the post exactly but the industry in general is in this real sort of like existential crisis yeah I mean I think it feels scary and uncertain in you know I don't, it's hard to think that like things are going to be the same in 10 years or, or whatever it is. Like, it just feels like because I'm in, um, because things are so dire so many places and I, my situation is still so great. Um, I'd say I feel some sense that, um, it's probably not always going to be that way and, and try to try to appreciate the fact that it is this way now um, and also prepare in some small ways for like, if it changes and I feel sad about it you know like where i live in portland and like where i'm from in denver the local papers that were once you know, those are the places that i i dreamed that maybe one day i would be lucky enough to work in one of those places and now they're just uh they're so challenged in every single way um in terms of resources in terms of everything else so you know i think i try to both be like try to take advantage of, of the resources that i do have by hopefully doing good work but also have a sense, although there are no signs there, and the post is very like encouraging about this kind of journalism. But have a sense that, yeah, in general, there are like some troubling newspaper signs for sure, and have been for a long time. So, what do you do with that? Uh, <laughs> feel nervous. Um, you know, I like try to s- save whatever I can for retirement early. Still not very much. Um, try to try to invest in the work so that like with the feeling that if there's um. You know, as as long as there's room for people to do this kind of work, I want to be one of the people that's able to do it. So, I guess trying to invest the anxiety uh, or the uncertainty back into the storytelling. I think that's the only way. That seems like the only possibly productive use of it. Otherwise, it would just be like existential terror and like looking at you know college classes online for things that I could prepare myself for the next career in like 2036. Uh, so, yeah, for now anyway, I'm just. Uh, investing the anxiety back into being like, I really need to find a good story. I was wondering how we were going to find a way to end on a hopeful note, but investing anxiety, that, that's a pretty hopeful idea. I know. Yep. Yeah. You got to, got to make it useful for you. Eli, thanks for doing this, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Our sponsors, longtime sponsors, making this show possible. MailChimp, the great people MailChimp down in Atlanta. Thanks to them. Thanks to the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh for making this thing possible. 
Uh, thanks to everyone who sponsors this show. It allows us to do it every week, and uh, it's a great gift. Thank you, sponsors. And thank you, Eli Saslow. Uh, it's a pleasure anytime I get to talk to that guy. His new book is called Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. It is on sale as of today. We'll see you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.